Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Ring Central, a cloud communications system that integrates with CRM sales and support applications like Salesforce, Zendesk, Box, and now Google for Work. Ring Central works to drive business forward. Learn more at ringcentral.com. Mucor, come in here at once. What is it, Dr. Wolfenstein? And it's Gregor. What's the thing we always say we want to change? That people hate you because you're a mad scientist? Oh, I was going to say our mission statement, but whatever. The point is, Fudor, I've invented something people will like. It's a soda. It's really green. Well, you know the game we play when you try something I've invented? It's called... Delicious or Disgusting. Yes, I hate that game. It's never the delicious thing. Last time I vomited baby toads for six hours. Ah, the infant toad projectile syrup. I really thought that would take off. Here, okay, just take one swallow. Oh, that was really... Oh, actually, that was delicious. That's like the best soda ever. It's only 25 calories per can, and it gives you energy. Is this a winner or what? What makes it taste so good? People. People as in the Pepsi generation coming at you going strong. No, people as in I put people in your soda. Hey, what's that face? Oh, come on now. Don't give me that face. This is so wrong. No, 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 no. The people were already dead. It wasn't like, ah, Dr. Wolfenstein, don't turn me into a soda. Okay, well, there was one of those. But I tried exactly one live person to see if it cut down on the hoppy flavor notes. But then it went too far into the caramel range. Well, it is refreshing. Can I try some more? See, people are going to get past the initial negatives. I want to call it Mountain Who. Like, who's in this soda? But today on the show, they're talking about the American love affair with soda and its future under the new FDA guidelines. And now, Dr. Pepper is his primary care physician, Colin McEnroe. And Dr. Pepper might well be my primary care physician because, at least in the early stages of soda, uh, soda was really marketed as a health drink. That's the irony, right? In in the 1880s, Colonel John Pemberton uh, invented Coca-Cola. He claimed that it cured morphine addiction. I think, don't hold me to this, I think he might have been addicted to morphine. Uh, Anyway, he claimed that it cured uh, morphine addiction, dyspepsia, neurasthenia, headache, impotence. Uh, and they ran advertisements um, saying that kind of that kind of thing. Um, in you know, Pepsi came along a little bit later, but uh, automobile race car driver Barney Oldfield was the first celebrity to endorse Pepsi Cola. He called it a bully drink, refreshing, invigorating, a bracer before a race. But the advertising was uh, was theme was delicious and healthful, and that was used for about twenty years. Um, the other part of the story of these uh, carbonated beverages was that they kind of leapt into a hole created by, or a gap maybe, created by the temperance movement. 
Um, so Coca-Cola in the in 1895 began advertising it itself as the great national temperance drink. Um, and so anyway, all these sodas, I mean, they were sort of, a, I mean, Moxie, my favorite, uh, Moxie was sold as Moxie nerve food. It was supposed to cure all kinds of things. By the way, in, in terms of temperance, the Women's Christian Temperance Union never entirely bought this. Uh, and they were very suspicious of soda fountains and soda parlors, which they kind of regarded as maybe one rung up on the ladder that descends into hell from saloons. They were just like a little bit better than that. But they, uh, WCTU, I was very suspicious of this whole soda thing. But anyway, it was plausibly, or at least people found it plausible that these things could be health drinks, things that were really good for you, almost med- medicines. They were kind of sold that way when there was less regulation of it. Now, of course, they're facing the opposite situation. I mean, kind of a waterloo of of health claims uh, going against them that soda causes diabetes, obesity, early onset of puberty, and girls, you name it. You know, every day brings out another study and another call for new regulations, uh, smaller serving sizes, stuff like that. So we're going to be talking about all of that as we go along here today. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this kind of this nutrition. It's either a Waterloo or a Rubicon. We'll have to decide which kind of river it is. Uh, but as we uh, we're going to talk about that in the first segment, we'll talk a little bit more about the kind of cultural positioning of soda uh, in the second segment. Uh, and towards the end of the show, we'll actually talk about artisanal sodas, new brands or old new brands, uh, brands that have been around, highly local brands like Avery's Beverages here in Connecticut, which are kind of newly hip because, of course, everything artisanal is automatically good. We know that. If it takes you five years to make one pickle, then we know it's good. Um, All right. So especially if you do it in Brooklyn. Uh, so let's introduce our guests. Uh, Douglas Van Praet is a marketing consultant and the author of Unconscious Branding, How Neuroscience Can Empower and Inspire Marketing. Uh, Marie Bragg is an associate professor at the NYU School of Medicine and Global Institute of Public Health. Um, she's going to be guiding us through a lot of this uh, nutrition stuff uh, here in the first segment. But before we do that, um, Douglas Van Praet, let's begin with you. Just uh, We're going to talk a lot about this in the second segment, but uh, soda companies did a pretty incredible job for you know at least 75 years if not more of just kind of marrying themselves to every cultural moment so that you know i mean the notion that Soda was something that accompanied the good times in your life, the happy moments in your life, uh, that it was refreshing and uplifting. Uh, I mean, the the branding of soda as this kind of psychological companion was, was, I I would think, you know, kind of a marvel, right? Sure. The soda manufacturers have been fantastic at marketing because I think they realized that we make decisions by emotional association way more than rational analysis. Um, so, so that that's sort of the key to it, right? To sort of marry it up. I mean, or at least we have done that. And and the question now is, can can science, can nutritionists, uh, can the latest scientific studies kind of make a decoupling of what you're talking about and get people to think more rationally about what it is they're drinking and what it, what it might be doing to them? Um, so, and how how good do you rate their chances, uh, Douglas Van Braid? Well, therein lies the rub, you know. We make decisions by emotional association. There's a great history, you know, of creating this this linkage between, take the Coke brand, you know, one of the best and strongest brands in the world. They've, you know, their advertising, their packaging, their marketing campaigns has been brilliant in 
creating an association between the basic human emotion of happiness. And, and that's, that's how we, we make decisions. And, you know, you get to a shelf, you're looking at a bunch of brands, the one that feels comfortable, familiar, and makes you feel good, um, you know, is the one that you choose. And oftentimes these are implicit or non-declarative memories. They're just associations we've had over the course of our life even if it's you having a Coke in fifth grade on a hot summer day, somewhere that's embedded in your unconscious mind. And that's how we make decisions. So decoupling these things through rational education is, is quite a challenge because that's not really how we make decisions. Most of our brain is implicit, unconscious, intuitive in, in, in the way it works. So rational analysis is a small part of it. We tend to make decisions emotionally, and we, we justify them rationally, which is not to say rational proof points can't excite your emotional sensibilities and change how you feel. That's what we're seeing, you know, with the diet industry with more information to suggest that perhaps there's some problems, you know, with these beverages. So it's, it's a, a tough road to hoe. And, you know, it has to be a combination of education, but also we have to use some of the marking te techniques that we've used to make sodas well to um, to uncouple it as well. So, uh, Marie Bragg, let's talk about this particular moment in the history of sodas. I mean, every day there is a new news story. Uh, there are states that have been considering actual warning labels. I think California's uh, just died uh, in, in legislative committee. Um, and, and so maybe you can sort of give us a sense. What's the history of the labeling of soda? Has it changed much over the years? Its most recent change has involved companies, most major companies and brands, uh, putting a calorie label on the front of the bottle. So if you take a peek at any can or bottle, you might see how many calories are in that. And that was a voluntary uh, move that you know, was sort of a result of some pressure. But that's the most recent change. Before that, the, really the nutrition facts panel that appears on all food packages and beverages started about 20 years ago, and that has things ranging from calorie to fat to sugar. And uh, more recently, there's been the FDA's proposal to add added sugar, actually, to the nutrition facts panel. Yeah, so th that's uh, something worth pausing over. So one of the things that was proposed last year as part of these new guidelines was that it would say added sugars. And, and so I, what that means sort of as opposed to naturally occurring sugars that would be present if we just had this bunch of ingredients, what does added sugars mean? You're exactly right. And so it would, it would show how many sugars were added after the fact. So something like 100% orange juice would have zero added sugars, whereas soda would have all of its sugars likely from added sugar. And so what that would help consumers do is really distinguish between things that have natural sugars and things that just have sort of, you know, table sugar dumped into it um, after the fact. And even though any sugary beverage, you know, it can lead to weight gain possibly, uh, this added sugar component will really help distinguish sugary beverages from, you know, naturally occurring juices. And, and, I mean, another battleground, my sense is, is the question of what's a serving size and what, what size can counts as a serving size. So, I mean, uh, the soda manufacturers will, will claim that within, say, a 20-ounce can uh, is more than one serving. The reality being hardly anybody opens a can of soda and then apportions it uh, over a, a series of different servings. So I, I assume this is one of the other things that gets fought over. 
Right, absolutely. And serving size is interesting because, like you're saying, who's going to drink half a can of carbonated cold Coke and then drink a flat, you know, half of it uh, a few hours later the next day? And so, uh, you know, humans are interesting creatures when it comes to consumption. And there's this idea of uh, consuming things according to units. And so, like you're saying, if we have a 20-ounce bottle of uh, soda, we're likely, likely to consume that as a unit. Same can apply for other foods and beverages. And so if we make those units smaller, we're going to make the default uh, amount of consumption smaller as well. Um, the, uh, I guess the gather there's also a push just to sort of tell us the ingredients. I mean, they tell us the ingredients, but anybody who's ever read the label of something that has complicated ingredients in it that are not familiar things that your grandmother would recognize to use Michael Pollan's formulation, mm-hmm. uh, you don't really know what these things are some of the time. That's that's right. And so it can get really complicated when things, you know, range from high fructose corn syrup to, um, to fructose to you know, regular cane sugar, uh, and that all really adds up to sugar in one way or another. And so it's important to be able to sort of cut through that and see the amount of added sugar on that label. Now, Douglas Van Praet, uh, uh Marie Bragg, is talking about these battles over labels. The The problem is that, that it's one thing to get the labels to say something of a cautionary nature. It's another thing to have that affect consumers the way that you want it to affect consumers. And, and my sense is that, that people sometimes bond in the wrong way. I mean, when they see that label, it's more like almost a Pavlovian. Oh, that's the thing I like, right? The thing that has that stuff in it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's a, a study that had been done using neuromarketing in the context of, of cigarette labels. And what they found with, with smokers is that when they see the warning label, it activated the nucleus accumbens, which is the craving center of the brain. And again, if we make decisions by emotional association, if that's how our brain works, in a Pavlovian sense, it was... A trigger, you know, you go to buy your pack of cigarettes, and it's a trigger of the future pleasures, uh, of the, the past pleasures, not the future um, problems. So, in certain instances, you know, we have to un- understand that we can create meaning when there is no meaning, and, and sometimes it's just part of the label and its association with the pleasures of nicotine. Um, by extension, could it be an association with the pleasures of caffeine and sugar? Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying labeling is a bad thing. I think conscious awareness of things is absolutely critical. But we have to realize that, um, you know, simply putting it on the label is not going to be um, effective off the bat. But I think it's it's certainly a, a good first step. Uh, as we go along here, by the way, we'd love to hear from you. We're live here in the afternoon. If you've been on a journey all through your life with soda, with your re- relationship maybe changing to so- with soda, give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Was your first date maybe at a soda fountain, and now do you regard this as some kind of toxic delivery system uh, for very bad things for you? Give us a call, 860-275-7266. You may tweet to us at WNPR Colin. Uh, and we're talking right now to, uh, to Douglas Van Praet, uh, from uh, who is a marketing consultant and the author of Unconscious Branding, How Neuroscience Can Empower and Inspire Marketing. Maria Bragg is an associate, Marie Bragg is an associate professor at the NY School of Medicine and Global Institute of Public Health. So, Marie, you know, you, you heard what he said, and I'm sure you've heard things like that before, right? That, that there's, you know, you want to have all the information there on the can, but it's one thing to get it there and then another to 
have it shape people's responses. You can't always control how it shapes their responses. That's right. And I, I agree that we can sometimes make emotional purchases, and it's important to consider whether or not labels will actually have an impact. An interesting side effect that may occur is that companies might actually start to reformulate some of their foods and beverages in response to sort of having a whopping calorie count on the front of um, the package or on the nutrition facts panel. And so we can look at the impact on the nutritional quality from two angles. One is uh, potentially from the consumer angle, and one is what the companies do in response to having to use these sorts of labels. Um, how, Marie, how big a push, I mean, obviously, the, the big three companies here, Coke and Pepsi and uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple, these are really big companies. Uh, and I just would think that the efforts of nutritionists and other well-meaning people uh, would be kind of like David attacking Goliath somehow. <laughs> I mean, how, how, much, how much cooperation do you get from them? How much pushback do you get from them? There's quite a lot of pushback, and so we have seen companies spend millions and millions of dollars to lobby against things like soda tax and other policies that we see would uh, be potentially the most influential. And so it's an interesting sort of contradiction because on one hand, they say, you know, we're cooperating, we'll do these voluntary um, labeling things, uh, sort of just don't regulate us. But then on the other hand, they use a lot of their lobbying dollars to fight tooth and nail over these policies. Um, uh, Douglas Van Prate, another thing that they've tried to do, obviously, is to simply rebrand a little bit uh, in order to send a different signal. So within the last year or so, both of the big players in the cola market, Pepsi and Coke, have come out with uh, there's Pepsi True Soda, which is sweetened partly with stevia and sold in a green can. And oddly enough, Coca-Cola Life, which is also sold in a green can. And and so so here, here are these brands. And they do have kind of they have very iconic logos. I mean, everybody knows what a Coca-Cola can looks like. And so they turn them green and they say it's got something better in it. Uh, How well would you expect something like that to work with a diehard consumer of these colas? Well, it's it's interesting because it's again, it's it's a natural spin. And, you know, this is it. These are companies that have a vested interest in the existing marketplace, so they're not going to be the disruptor brands. You have to look outside the category of those brands to look at it. disruptor brands um, like Zevia, for instance, which is all, you know, no sugar and just uh, stevia. But in the case of, you know, Pepsi True and Coke Life, again, we make decisions by association, so the cans are green, and it still has a, a lot of sugar in it. It's, it's just simply adding stevia and you know for the natural spin now it is a reduction in calories it's better uh it's it's towards the solution of of getting to where we need to but it um you know i think their concern you know and rightfully so has been one of taste because people acclimate to um you know sugar and high fructose corn syrup and, and zevia has a different taste but we have to harken back to when you know, diet soda was first introduced. Uh, people didn't like the taste, but taste is a learned behavior. You know, through plasticity, we learn to like things through exposure over time. But that's a commitment to the long haul, you know, and, and it's also a disruption of their base business, which, which you know, companies don't want to do. So oftentimes, you know, it's other, other brands that disrupt the category. They become big. And then these players look at that, that brand and say, well, you know, they've got a market. Let's buy that brand. So, that that's probably how it's going to shape out, but but at least they're they're 
they're beginning to introduce um, stevia because I think that is a very um, viable solution to this uh, to this conundrum. And, and Marie, uh, from from your side of the equation, does does that make a difference? I mean, is stevia is something like that going to make these uh, products a little less dangerous to the people who use them? Public health experts really see this as a complex issue that needs a variety of policy solutions. And so while incorporating maybe more natural sugars or um, alternatives could be a step in the right direction, we actually really need bold change to reduce soda consumption and to uh, reduce the obesity epidemic in this country. And so, you know, swapping something out for stevia isn't necessarily going to do that all by itself. What would bold change be? Bold change would be, uh, you know, if we're going really bold, a comprehensive maybe national soda tax um, is a good place to start. And so Mexico did that and um, has been seeing promising results so far. So, so that has the most science behind it. And, and Marie, what are the big companies doing to survive? I mean, obviously, they're going to survive, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be people who are concerned about health issues. They're going to be people who are gravitating towards different kinds of beverages. I mean, that's been happening for ages. I somehow or other feel as though these gigantic soda companies are not going to be brought to their knees. You know, they, we've seen actually a similar pattern uh, with tobacco companies in terms of what they've been doing recently. So as sort of attention and regulation clamps down here in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of money being spent in developing countries, which is the same thing tobacco companies did when we clamped down on regulations here. And so um, there's an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal about, um, you know, companies spending millions of dollars in um, parts of Africa, India, and other places to try to build up consumption there. So I think we'll see basically a lot of exportation of these uh, sugary beverages. Um, I'll ask you both of the, about this, but Marie, I'll start with you too. I assume also another thing that these companies are doing here in this country is, I mean, we I talked about the green cans and all that stuff, but I assume they're doing other things to kind of co-opt this movement towards more natural products, more artisanal products, more small batch products. Sure. So small batch, we've seen Mountain Dew come up with their own small batch um, brand, and it sort of has a similar look and feel to small batch um, alcohol beverages. And so I think some of that is, um, like Douglas was saying, trying to get into a market that has you know some popularity and trying to be creative in the way that they appeal to people. And so I think those things you know can be done in a way that's consistent with public health in, in terms of uh, making the packages smaller and and promoting um, a higher number of uh, healthy beverages, but it's going to take quite a lot to to get us out of where we are. All right, we've got a ton of calls coming in here. Uh, I'm going to um, have Rasan address this one probably to Douglas Van Prate. Uh, Rasan from Cromwell, hold on just a second. Okay, now you're on the line. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. My question, I guess my comment is more around personal accountability, and while I understand you know, changing serving sizes and giving more information. I'm also the father of four boys, and ultimately it's my responsibility to determine what they or I consume and don't consume. And I'm concerned that we're making a big push to change the product, but not making a big push to change the mindset that that, that creates a desire for it. Well, I mean, but I think, Douglas Van Prade, a, a fair question would be, who's in control of that process anyway? Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at the way we make decisions, a lot of them are made unconscious. I mean, this is an entire industry that caters to an evolved taste preference for high-fat, 
high sugar, high salt, because everyone on the planet craves these ingredients because for most of evolution, you know, in Pleistocene environments, they were scarce resources. So we're, we're all, we, we all have these powerful, unconscious, instinctual, emotional drives. But I think the caller points to an important point. You know, we, we need a cultural shift, um, you know, not just a product and a package and a, and a marketing shift. So I think, you know, we have to look at this holistically and realize the, the depth and the extent to which we crave these products. And this is not just the soda industry. It's the fast food industry. And, you know, it's, it's food in general. You're hard-pressed to find, find no added sugars in a lot of items on the grocery, including things you wouldn't expect, like spaghetti sauce. So, yeah, I, I think we have to really widen the aperture and look at the scope of this problem from a big, holistic, cultural, and global perspective that could also start at the level of parenting, you know. So um, it, it's, it's complex, and it needs help on all sides. Rasan, does that answer your concern or your question? Yeah, it absolutely does. I just, like, would love to hear more, like, you know, the conversation tailored a little bit away from Coke changing what they do. I mean, they're a money-making entity that's not here to be the social conscious. But, you know, where's the big push to have everyone just think about, you know, what you're actually putting into your body? Uh, you started with parents because ultimately, you know, we create consumers for tomorrow or today. All right, great point. And uh, so, Marie Bragg, before you go, I'm sure you would like to teach the world to sing exactly uh, the way Rasan is talking about, right? I mean, that ultimately it would be great if every consumer sort of thought pretty consciously about all these questions. I don't know how realistic that is, though. You know, it's a it's a great perspective to have, but unfortunately, freedom of choice and sort of personal responsibility is a bit of an illusion because these companies spend billions of dollars. Um, setting up products and advertising campaigns that capitalize on our desire for sugary, salty foods. And so right now, the, over, the environment totally overwhelms personal responsibility. And we know that kids actually can't distinguish between advertising and um, you know, cartoons. So young kids actually have no real defense mechanism against it. And so that's why we need these large-scale policy changes. All right, Marie Bragg, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more of Douglas Van Prate. We'll talk about that thing about, well, we'll talk about that thing. But now you look around these days. There seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? All right. Uh, we're coming back here. We're talking about sodas today. It's sort of junk food day on WNPR, uh, thanks to our intern, uh, Sydney Laro. Not that she makes us just junk food, but this morning uh, on Where We Live, they talked about uh, McDonald's and uh, other related corporations and the uh, the Rubicon that they have to cross. Uh, today, we're uh, and here in the afternoon, we're talking about sodas, and we're happy to hear from you. A lot of people calling in already. I shouldn't even give out the phone number. The lines are kind of full right now. Uh, we're talking right now to Douglas Van Prate. He's a marketing consultant and the author of Unconscious Branding, How Neuroscience Can Empower and Inspire Marketing. Um, Douglas Van Prate, I want to come back to what we started with, because, I mean, just uh, coming out of that last segment, you may have heard us uh, play the Dr. Pe- Pepper jingle, sung, I might add, by David Naughton, grew up in West Hartford and went to Conard High School. Um, but in, in, in so doing, 
probably ruined a few people's afternoons because they're going to be walking around the office going, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? So, um, and, and I can sing, you know, the Pepsi Generation theme song. I can, I can sing a lot of those things. And, and I assume if you've done that and married it to your brand and associated the packaging with it, you've kind of won the battle, at least for the short term and maybe for the long term, right? Well, absolutely. You know, brands are a reflection of identity. And when you approach marketing at the level of identity, meaning which great brands do, you know, they, they define who you are, your affinity of a group to a group. You know, to I'm a Pepper is, is one of the seminal examples of great advertising at the identity level. The Pepsi generation, you know, the Uncola, you know, we're not them, we're this. More recently, Share a Coke, um, very successful. Well, very successful. You know, they certainly had a pop in sales by putting their people's names on a can, and then people would share it on social media. So, you know, when we see our name attached to an iconic label, you know, we feel important and we share it with our social groups. Uh, you know, people have, you know, and there's even been research to say that. Marsha's prefer Mars bars, you know, things that we have a unconscious affinity with on, on some deep level, we tend to prefer as a brand. And I think, again, that goes back to the, the conundrum of, you know, we make decisions by emotional associations. Is rational, you know, proof points like labels enough to do it? And I think it's a start, but um, it's, it's, it's not the, uh, the pinnacle of great marketing. Um, let's uh, grab a call here from Rob in East Windsor. Hi, Rob. Hi, how are you today? We're fine. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I wanted to make another comment about the size of soda serving. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and I know it was already commented on, but one thing that wasn't mentioned is that people do have a choice to make. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, you can talk about the fact that they buy a 20-ounce bottle and drink the whole thing, but there are 12-ounce cans out there. And somebody who chooses the 20-ounce bottle does it on purpose, I think. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mistake where they thought, yeah, I'm going to buy this and uh, only drink part of the bottle. Oh, true. But I, so this is a great point to make to Douglas Van Prate, too. So, I mean, although I think Rob is suggesting that we make those decisions consciously, and obviously one of the things the soda companies has done is almost a literal kind of shape-shifting, right? They they have little tiny cans now. They have enormous bottles that barely fit in your refrigerator. I mean, it seems as though they're, there's, they're just constantly offering you different sizes of things. I don't know whether it is just sort of a shotgun approach where they hope sooner or later they'll hit the target that is you. Well, you know, you're talking about the small size. They've done actually quite well. And yeah, this is a way to look at our decision-making. You know, we don't really have free will. We have free won't. Mm-hmm. We are guided by our emotional impulses, which we don't choose. But we can apply the brakes of restraint, or we could fall short in stopping in time. You know, I think um, we make decisions due to the drives of our emotions, but we look for rational permission. And I think that's the small cans are addressing the second part of the equation, the rational permission. If we know we have an emotional desire to buy Coke, it's, it's delicious, we want it, but we're looking for permission to indulge on these guilty 
treats, you know, these moments of pleasure. And I think, you know, serving it up in smaller packaging is, is, a, is in a way a fair value exchange. We're helping them manage um, an addiction or a craving. And, um, and they're actually paying more for it, ironically. Uh, the, um, the, the, I was asking Marie, you know, I mean, what's the likelihood that these giant companies are going to be brought to their knees? Uh, and she talked about just shipping the products overseas and stuff like that. But I assume as somebody who really studies branding that you probably think that, that most of these big companies are going to be able to alter their message enough to stay as big players in the game. Can you comment on that? I yeah, I think it's going to be more than a messaging shift, you know, because I really think, um, you know, it needs to be um, a bigger shift. It, it needs to be, you know, innovation drives the category because people are attracted to novelty. And a lot of that innovation is in design and spin and campaign and niche products like artisanal, you know, products and things like that. But I think we need substantive change, and I, I, I think Stevia is, is a very viable solution. I think it, it, it's um, – but it requires a long-term eye, and, and um, you know, that's, that's difficult for them to do. So I, I think there are wholesale changes that need to happen, um, and if there is a cultural shift in reduction of sugar – they will obviously, you know, follow the, the cultural shift as well. So, um, you know, we, we, we need more changes beyond just a, a new skin to an old wine. We, we, we need new products that are substantively different. Um, let's grab a call to that um, extent or, or with that in mind. Let's grab a call here from Tom in Wa- Waterton. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, you're on the air. How are you? Um it's, it's a cultural shift, I think, which everybody's alluded to. It's a major cultural shift. There are countries that have made these strides. They've done these studies. They're, they're, Europe as a whole is probably a, a much thinner country or a series of countries than America is. And these decisions are made in the boardrooms. And, and, and the decisions to, that are made are always going to affect everybody's health. But, but ideally, until the culture changes, and if we look at some of the pilot programs that have worked, uh, i.e. the gentleman mentioned one in Mexico, we don't look at pilot programs. We don't look at the successes of other countries and mirror those successes and bring those successes to our culture and our country. But yet uh, the biggest country in the world, and the la-di-da-dies, the end game is we're also the most obese. You've got Michelle Obama in the White House, who, who in essence that was her criteria, that was her deal to bring obesity to some kind of a, a halt or, or do her best. Even of that capacity, the First Lady, not going to the other countries, talking with these experts, talking to the nutritionists, let alone the corporations in some capacity, which really, in this big picture, is the toughest, uh, the toughest to make change, is attacking that element of the whole scenario, the, the corporations in the boardrooms that, that have to make decisions for shareholders and not truly and wholeheartedly on the health of the country. Although, um, you know, Douglas Van Prate, this sort of also goes back to the point you made earlier that sometimes warnings on cigarette packs trigger kind of a, a Proustian recognition or a Pavlovian recognition of, oh, yeah, this is the thing that I've enjoyed so much in the past. And, and you know, it's, it, it is one thing for us to sit here and say all this stuff, but Americans are wired a certain way. They're wired to expect a certain size drink. They're wired, or at least we, they've, they've been conditioned to, express, and to, to expect maybe that a certain size— 
human being is a normal sized human being. And another thing that that sort of seems to be part of the American temperament is they don't like being told what to do. I mean, whether it's Michael Bloomberg trying to cut down on the size of sodas sold in New York City or Michelle Obama or anybody else, you know, that kind of voice will reach a certain segment of the consumer population. And it seems there's another fairly large and sometimes literally large segment of the population that just doesn't want to be dictated to. Do you have any response to that? Yes, it's very ironic because the freedom of choice argument is, is often used to subvert efforts to to regulate sugar, for instance. And I would say, you know, if you go to a grocery store and try to choose one that doesn't have sugar, your choice has been obviated. You know, you, you don't have the ability to choose a healthy option. So they say we have to have the sugar options because it's freedom of choice. But you know, most products out there have added sugar. So I, I think we have to give people um, choice for healthier options. And it's, again, it's not just the soda industry. I think it's other products as well. As well at the grocery shelves, we, we realize that these people are in the business of selling product. Sugar is a very addictive product. And it moves off the shelves. And if we pull back on the sugar, people feel it's missing and they're less likely to crave it. So we have to, um, again, go, go back to a cultural shift. But we also have to create conscious awareness of the problem and offer people viable alternatives in, in categories where they want to choose a, a lower sugar option that doesn't have artificial ingredients. I mean, the other possibility, and we're going to talk about artisanal products and, and talk to the manufacturer of one artisanal soda product um, uh, in, in the in the final segment. But, you know, uh, the, the previous caller, Tom, talked about sort of how other countries do things. Well, one of the things we do know about France and about Mediterranean uh, uh, um, cultures is that a lot of times they'll consume the same things, uh, but they won't consume as much of them. They won't be this constant accompaniment to the day, right? I mean, the French like chocolate uh, and they like wine and they like coffee. They like all those things. But, you know, a tiny little square of chocolate maybe once a day. Whereas, I mean, it seems to me one of the struggles for Americans is if they like something, they want to like it all day long. They're not going to have one artisanal soda at four o'clock in the afternoon to get them through the last part of the day or something. They expect to be able to, to consume something that they like pretty much constantly. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's both cultural and it's it's a human truth. You know, supersize me by McDonald's was was a human truth. You know, and it goes back to the fact that we crave these ingredients. Most of our evolution, they were very important. Now there's an abundance of these resources, so our instincts no longer serve us well. But there's a gizmo in our head that says, whenever you can have high high fat, high salt, high sugar, you know. Feed, you know, feed excessively because these resources are scarce. Your brain has not caught up with the cultural shift because evolution is a very small process. But, but you're right. In, in, in France and other countries, um, they, they have a different approach, I think, that Americans have for long times, you know, been um, bigger is better, bigger is better. But you can use that energy against you. You know, one of the brands I worked on, you know, was Volkswagen, and, you know, they they, they um, pushed against an industry that said bigger is better and celebrated the fact that they, you know, that they were small and that they were humble and that, that they didn't boast and, and go big. 
Um, you know, so there's ways to use advertising to push against the culture of excess and say it's time for a change. Um, and and I, I think, you know, these are things we have to be thinking about. All right. Uh, we're going to move from there to the small brand soda. Uh, thanks so much to Douglas Van Prate. Uh, he is a marketing consultant and the author of Unconscious Branding, How Neuroscience Can Empower and Inspire Marketing. When we come back, we're going to tell you about Avery's Beverages in New Britain. They've been around a long time. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Today's Soda Show, uh, excuse me, was produced by our interns Sydney Loro, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brittany Spears. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making spicy Dr. Pepper shredded pork with Sprite sauce, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the rewards and miseries of freelancing. And now... Back to Colin. You know, there is this whole school of cooking with soda where they make things like spicy Dr. Pepper shredded pork with Sprite sauce. Uh, that's like a whole thing. Uh, all right. We're going to talk to uh, Rob Metz right now. Uh, he's the general manager and chief bottle washer at Avery's Beverages in uh, New Britain. Let me just begin by saying, though, one of the uh, things that I thought about as we got ready for Sidney Laro's soda show was a, a, an essay which I couldn't track down by my friend Roy Blunt Jr., but it was it, it dealt with sort of the, the soda's of days bygone, you know, and he, I think he even talks about, um, oh no, I'm, I'm blanking on which poem it is. I think it's, uh, uh, to a skylark. No, it's something by Keats, uh, where there's the purple stained mouth. And he talks about someone who's about to now write in and say which poem that is, uh, about how that remain, reminds him of grape knee high. And then he does, he describes these things, which I think don't probably exist anymore. Although if they do, Rob Metz will know. Like you'd go into a gas station and there would be this big metal kind of cooler thing and in it would be ice water um, and, and there'd be these bottles of soda sitting in the ice water. It's, the caps would be dimly visible through all the ice water and you'd pull things out and you'd see things. I used to visit my cousins up in Terraville, and they always had these really interesting sodas, sodas I'd never seen before. Uh, and, and I think a lot of them were locally bottled sodas. So sometimes they were colors that I hadn't really seen before in soda. And there was a joy just reaching your, your hand down into that ice water there and that big cooler inside the gas station and pulling out some soda that you'd never seen before. And they preserved that joy at Avery's Beverages in New Britain, one of several small bottlers uh, here in Connecticut. Rob Metz is joining us now. Hi, Rob. You're on the line. I certainly am. Um, Thanks for uh, having us. How long has Avery's been around? We've been um, <clears throat> making soda here for 111 years, since 1904. So probably when I went to visit my cousins in Terraville, all the interesting flavors I was seeing, probably a lot of them were uh, Avery's sodas. And so now there's sort of an irony, right? You've been around forever, but suddenly you're artisanal. There's like this this whole new idea that something that's made in small batches uh, is better, is good, is desirable. Is is that helping your sales? Absolutely. It's a, and, and it's a, and what you talked about as far as the nostalgia piece, that's a big part of it. But the, the whole... The whole craft movement that that actually you know with uh, uh, with microbrew beers is is kind of uh, translating into into an increased uh, interest in in craft soda, and it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, soda is um, at least 
um, craft soda is cool again. And so it sounds like, uh, based on what some of our earlier guests said, the big companies are kind of trying to um, to copy what uh, you've been doing for a, a long time, right? Yes, and there you've got the you know the Pepsi throwback. You've got I think Pepsi's coming out with something at the, called Caleb's Cola, which is uh, they're they're test marketing. But it's these they're uh, they're trying to capitalize on the, the this newfound interest in uh, in craft foods. And you know with uh, with your soda. There's not just an interest in the, um, the what's in the bottle, but in the bottle itself, right? That's true. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff we do is in is in the old fashioned, you know, painted label bottles. But a lot of what we do is in in a, in a newer a newer style bottle that we can actually get. The the old bottles are are difficult to uh, to buy anymore because nobody uses a returnable bottle much. So it's uh, uh, the business has changed a little bit. Are, are you able to sort of see either geographically or in terms of, of just the new customers who's who's drinking uh, a small brand bottler like like Avery's these days? It's um, it, it falls into a, a few different categories. And as I said, we have a nostalgia piece of it. So you've got uh, uh, parents and grandparents that grew up on Avery's and bring their kids and grandkids in here to see the place um, and uh, you know come in and actually see how something's made. Um, and you've got the local war folks that, that just like to buy things locally. And then, then the whole craft segment, and I, I'd say the craft folks are probably um, more the, uh, the younger 20s and 30s kind of folks and, uh, that are just looking for something that's, uh, uh, that's handmade, glass bottles, real sugar, that kind of, kind of product. And yeah, you just said it, but I was going to ask. So you use real sugar as opposed to other things that that might be used to sweeten soda, correct? No, no high fructose corn syrup, only pure cane sugar. Um, and my recollection is you are pretty innovative about the flavors. I mean, ranging from just identifiable flavors that I've heard of before, plus ones with funny names. Tell us a couple of your favorite uh, Avery's flavors these days. Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, the Totally Gross sodas have been huge for us, uh, things like zombie brain juice and toxic slime. I was kind of intrigued by uh, uh, Kion's opening, uh, the baby toad soda. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of, might steal that from her. All right. Make sure you send us like a dollar or something <laughs> so we don't, we don't feel. So there's that. And then there are actually recognizable flavors. But it's, I mean, really, it's, it's a little bit more than just root beer and, and Coke, right? You have, you have a pretty wide range of flavors from we my have over. 40 different flavors. I mean, things like kiwi soda, watermelon, and peach, and uh, and um, and some unusual, you know, uh, concoctions that we come up with. And so, um, and, and that's what what the fun part of it is. Is you you know, everybody's had kind of cola shoved down their throats for all these years, and uh, and and part of the fun part is getting all these different flavors that you know. I mean, when's the last time you had a sarsaparilla? Right. I mean, it's a uh, that's a part of the fun of it. Um, so for uh, hipsters who are out there listening and thinking, okay, I've got to have a party with Avery's uh, sodas, where, where can people get uh, your, how do people even try, is there a website where they can find where it's sold? Um, that is a bit of a challenge. No, we don't have that. I mean, we are probably in in um, uh, in many states all across the country now because we have distributors all over the country. But in the local area here, um, the the biggest retailers uh, you're going to find local to us besides our shop here is probably Stu Leonard's and uh, and uh, and a couple of small shops. So most of the folks we deal with are the small little pizza shops and candy shops and and places that uh, that are underserved by Coke and Pepsi, and they're the they're the folks we like to deal with.
Well, Rob Metz, uh, great to talk to you again. Rob Metz, general manager for uh, Avery Soda. We wanted to squeeze, uh, and I apologize for only having two minutes left, but um, I got contacted this morning uh, about a different kind of beverage. We've got a guy named uh, Casey Hoban uh, who's calling in. He's from Guilford. And you started your own beverage company with, uh, with some other dads. Do I have this correct? Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having us on on short notice. Uh, we're humbled and honored to be here. Yeah, we're Guilford, Connecticut guys. I was previously in the, in the beverage business in a hard cider that became a number one seller U.S. It's Woodchuck Hard Cider. While I was at Woodchuck, I realized for my three children that played sports, and all of our partners' children play sports, and we all played sports, there was nothing light, refreshing, and chuggable with zero sugar and protein. Un, you know, vitamin water, Powerade, Gatorade, they're loaded with sugar, they're loaded with salt, which people don't realize. And we have zero sugar, zero carbs. And we have a tiny bit of salt to make the profile work, and we have protein, and they don't. We, I pretty much got tired of all the sugary cereal snacks and beverages being mass marketed to our children. I got mad about it, and I did something about it. Uh, you know, I, had, I have a history of diabetes in my family also. I got tired of the obesity and the diabetes uh, epidemics. And I, and I found a, a, our team found a niche in, in the market where there was nothing light, refreshing, and chuggable with protein without sugar. And, and we had three commitments to this drink. It had to be in, uh, healthy, with, which is only 28 calories, all from whey protein isolate. It has 100% of B-complex vitamin, which gives you energy. It had to be healthy. It had to be in a good-looking package. It's a sleek white package targeted to women, 20 to 40, and athletic folks. And it had to be delicious. If it wasn't delicious, it wasn't going to leave our hands. Casey, We're before we proud. run out of time, uh, I'm not sure we've said what it's called. Oh, thank you so much. It's called Trimino Protein-Infused Water. We're currently in 20 states and 3,000 stores. Big Y, all the big Ys, Roach Brothers, Dave's in Rhode Island, so, Roach Brothers, so Boston. We're, we're Trimino's. Yeah, Trimino's. I want to make just make sure we say that again. It's called Trimino's. Unfortunately, we're kind of out of time here, although I do want to point out that Dr. Wolfenstein's soda that we mentioned in the intro, that has protein, right? It's got people in it. I mean, what could be? What could have more protein than people? All right. So, uh, thanks very much uh, to everybody who helped out today, and congratulations to Sydney Laro, our intern who produced this show. We will be back, back, back tomorrow. We love it. I'll have an RC Cola and a Moon Pie, please. Ah, you must be from down south. <laughs> yeah, right. And if I ordered a lasagna with a Chianti, I'd be from Italy, right? I mean, that is so... No, because this is a hardware store. I'll, uh, I'll take that hammer um, as well, please. Thank you. <laughs>